Marisol Cortez Rincon is an archaeologist, and she will be the first to tell you that it can be really tedious. Every summer, she and some students from Humboldt State University go to an archaeology dig site in Belize. It's hot. It's muggy. You spend hours methodically sifting and exploring the dirt, and then even more hours logging everything into a very exciting spreadsheet. But she says the work does have its moments. (laughs) I'm guessing you want to know about the Jaguar. (laughs) The Jaguar. Yeah, we're going to want to know more about that. This is Mike Dronkers, and on this episode of My Favorite Lecture, you'll hear a remarkable talk recorded live at the Plaza View Room in Arcata, California, from an archaeologist who studies Maya warfare. She uses CSI-style science to reconstruct everything from combat weaponry to Mesoamerican trade routes. But just like pretty much everyone, her career path had some detours, some side jobs. And as the room filled up before showtime, we found out just how those detours came in handy. I know some of the jobs I had, part-time paralegal. I actually also used to work as tech support for computers. So, and believe it or not, they come in really handy today because in archaeology, we use a lot of technology. So I can take apart, you know, drone equipment, put it back together. With laws and legislation, I have to know where is it legal for me to excavate if I want to excavate somewhere. What kind of laws do I have to pay attention to and get permits for it? Can you talk a little bit about the, the Belize Field Archaeology School that you do every summer? I take anywhere between six to ten students to northwestern Belize. We work in ancient Maya households, and so we do a lot of settlement mapping to try to see what kind of um, use of the landscape they had in ancient times. I'm part of sort of a branch of archaeology that deals with commoners, because commoners are roughly 97% of the population. If people are only looking at the shiny temples, they're only looking at 3% of that population. So I want to know what were the commoners doing, where were they living, you know, what did they trade. People's history style. Yeah, exactly. You're like the Howard's Inn of archaeology. I guess. (laughs) So do you have any cool stories about field camp in Belize, anything... I'm guessing you want to know about the jaguar. <laughs> um, we have a lot of <laughs> we have a lot of cats in Belize, um, so we have jaguars, pumas, and then smaller cats. Most of the cats are just really curious by nature, just like household cats, right? But you don't want to pet them. Periodically, what we find is we take photos, and as we're getting our photos printed, we'll see something in the background, and of course, you know, there's a cat back there that we never even saw. So we set up camp for the night, and we only had two tents, um, and so I took the smaller tent because I was the only female with the group. So I set up my tent a little further away from the guys, which in the middle of the night I found out that was a bad idea. Because I woke up in the middle of the night and there was, I felt like huffing and puffing above my head. And so I woke up thinking, oh, it's my dog, you know, she wants to go outside. You know, I was half asleep thinking I'm back at home and then of course I realized, okay, I'm not at home. And so I'm looking up and then I see this sort of triangular face above me and then you know I didn't have my glasses on obviously <laughs> so I'm squinting and then I realize holy crap this is a jaguar right above my head and the tent is really thin it's just like a very thin screen material so it keeps blowing air in my face and then scenting me so I try to stay really quiet and try to control my breathing and then I guess I got bored and it left. You're not doing a good job of making archaeology sound really tedious and boring. <laughs> what is a common misunderstanding about Maya culture? 
Um, one of the most common misunderstandings is that um, most people believe that the Maya are gone, that the Maya disappear and that they're not there anymore. And all you have to do is travel through Central America and see that they're still there. You know, some of them are still practicing their same cultural beliefs. It's just that no one is building any pyramids anymore. But culturally, the Maya are in the Yucatan, Guatemala, and plenty of other places in Central America. Real quickly, what are you going to talk about tonight here at My Favorite Lecture? Tonight I'm going to talk about the issues of archaeology or warfare. I'm also going to discuss what are some of the indicators of conflict. So what are some of those things that we as archaeologists look for when we're hoping to study warfare events. I'll talk a little bit about gender and warfare. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about a pretty violent episode in ancient times um, that is related to warfare. And we have quite a bit of forensic information about it. Have a great lecture. Break a leg. Thanks. Without further ado, welcome to my favorite lecture. Season finale, that's right. Marisol Cortez Rincon. All right, fans in the house. She is the chair of Humboldt State's Anthropology Department. She is the director of the Archaeology Research Lab. She studies Mesoamerican warfare, Maya fortifications. She takes archaeology students to Belize in the summer. And if that weren't cool enough, she has been awoken by an actual jaguar. <laughs> Secrets out. Please give it up for Marisol Cortez Rincon. Well, thank you so much for coming. Um, thank you, especially our um, archaeology and anthropology faculty and students. I study uh, Mesoamerican warfare, and it's one of the things that I'm really passionate about. I love looking at evidence of conflict in ancient cultures. So warfare in any region um, really calls my attention. But today, we're going to be talking about Mesoamerica. Um, and then I'll explain what Mesoamerica is all about. So when we think about the Maya lowlands, uh, for example, what we're going to be discussing is uh, areas that are located in these particular countries. So for example, we have um, sites that are located in Mexico, which is the northern Maya lowlands. And then we have the central Maya lowlands um, in this area, which is Belize, Guatemala. And then, of course, we have some sites in this particular part of the world. But when we talk about Maya lowlands, um, that's essentially the part of the region of Central America that we discuss. So indicators of conflict, um, we talk about, well, when we're looking or excavating, what could be a, um, an implication that there was something happening there that could be um, evidence of warfare. So I'll talk about some of these. I am not a Maya epigrapher, so I'll do my best to do this part. But we do have evidence of um, linguistically, um, which Dr. Chase and Dr. Chase um, a couple. Um, they work in uh, Catacol, and so they have done extensive information about um, language and what are some of the terminology that is used in some of these monuments to talk about warfare. So this is um, Chuk A, and it actually refers to capture, which is um, it's one of the glyphs um, that would have been seen in the previous slide. Um, we also talk about Cha'ak. And this refers to decapitation, um, or sometimes um, merely just wielding an axe. 
Another is Hoopy, which is one of my favorite um, destruction. And so this one, um, we see it every now and then. And warfare is really not practical to essentially take over a site and completely destroy it, right? Because you know they would have wanted to take some of those resources in order to be able to use that particular area. But we do see evidence of complete destruction um, in the ancient Maya world. So we see that some sites, for whatever reason, maybe they were just too hard to control, they were actually completely um, destroyed. And then we see um, quite a lot of reference to Star Wars, not the movies, uh, but it's just, <laughs> um, they talk about this a lot, um, uh, Star Wars episodes between um, different sites. And some of these sites um, had warfare that went on for decades. And it was sort of that feud between these polities that kept carrying on for decade after decade after decade. So other things that um, would give us an indication of conflict would be epigraphic, which linguistically, and sometimes iconography. Um, this is uh, one of my favorite queens from the Maya world, um, and her name is Lady Six Sky. Um, Lady Six Sky was the ruler of El Naranjo, and her father was a famous warlord, um, and she took right after her father. A really strong female in the ancient Maya world. As you can see um, back here, this is actually a captive of hers that she captured in battlefield. So women, of course, were allowed in the battlefield. And there is a great book um, that talks about um, the great Maya queens. And some of them, like Lady Six Sky, were also warriors. Up here is actually where her name glyph actually begins, and so it refers to a lady. Um, normally, it usually would say Lord, but since this is a female, they changed it for that. What she's wearing over here is indicative of a female ruler, um, and so for example, you'll notice that her skirt's a little longer than what men would have normally worn. And then there's also a shell piece in the middle that's indicative of fertility, so that would also indicate that this is a female individual. And then this individual is an elite um, that was captured from a different city, from the city of Ucanal. Um, Naranjo um, had quite a bit of warfare with Caracol. They couldn't actually attack Caracol directly, so they did the next best thing and capture an ally of Caracol, which is this poor guy right here. And then this is his um, glyph name, so that actually has that information about him. Um, so what Lady Six Sky did is instead of killing him ritually, which is what some other rulers would do, is she kept him around for a while. And you might ask, well, why would you do that, right? Um, and the reason for that is if the ruler or the elite individual from Ucanal is kept alive, nobody else can rise to power. So in a sense, she's holding the rulership of a different city in stasis. So that's a really good call for her to do. And then when her son was old enough to take a role of the rulership, um, she gifted him um, that particular captive. So. <laughs> Um, other information that we have uh, for, for warfare, um, of course, has to do with murals. Unfortunately, due to the nature of um, you know, Central America as a tropical rainforest, and so it's really moist. Um, so murals, unfortunately, do not preserve really well. And so this is actually um, a replica of it. So it's a replica of it. Um, the murals themselves are in really bad condition. So you could actually see some of the sections um, that they couldn't replicate. 
but looking at this particular mural from Bonham Park, um, you could definitely get to see that there's um, different weaponry, different um, things that individuals are wearing. So for example, we have individuals that are wearing um, some jaguar skin, some different um, bird um, headdresses that are representing uh, deities. And then of course the weaponry itself. So we have quite a different array of weaponry that we could look at um, in that particular instance. And then here the artist, um, represented this individual with a projectile um, point essentially embedded um, right through his leg. So we get to see a little bit of um, you know, hand-to-hand -hand kind of combat. Ooh. And then this is another, um, so at Bonham Park, there's one particular building where if you walk into this particular building, there's three rooms. And each of these rooms have murals on the walls and they different have thematic themes. One just has to do with the procession and then the one that I'm showing you, of course, has to deal with warfare. Um, so what you're looking at right now is what happens after a particular warfare episode, right? So um, soldiers from the other sites um, are brought back um, to the site. And so what we're looking at here, of course, is we see this particular individual and we know that this is um, the ruler um, who's being presented with all of these um, prisoners of war. So here, for example, again, we see the different um, outfits that a lot of the elite warriors are wearing. Um, in the previous slide, you probably noticed that some people were just wearing minimal stuff. Uh, but the elite individuals, of course, have a little bit more access um, to protective gear, because um, they actually had a, a really interesting armor piece. And then, of course, um, shields, and then again, weaponry. Uh, the bottom part of the slide, um, it's a little bit cut off, but in the bottom steps, you could actually see um, that there's individuals that have already been decapitated um, or even dismembered, right? And so if you were walking in ancient times through this particular room, it's a really powerful statement to walk into this room and see um, you know, the, essentially the proof of power um, and military prowess of this particular ruler. Here, for example, you'll see that some of the individuals um, have blood coming out of their fingers. So it's been hypothesized that these individuals were actually scribes. And so the reason for that is because scribes are displayed with their hands in that particular pose. And so one researcher um, sort of hypothesized that maybe these individuals that could have been scribes uh, would have been captured because essentially um, writing, the knowledge of writing in um, ancient Maya languages was only known by the elites. And so if these were scribes uh, that were writing for a different ruler, and so essentially you take away their propaganda. So that's one of the things uh, that would have been happening. Um, weaponry, I really enjoy uh, working with weaponry. Um, so one of the things that we do in my department, and I have one of my faculty here that works with me, Barb, um, and so one of the things that we do is we do a lot of experimental um, sort of projects. And the reason for that is that we want to see um, you know, how effective were these particular weapons, right? And I mentioned that this is a tropical rainforest, so the wooden part of a spear or a longsword wouldn't actually preserve because it's organic material and it would just completely dissolve. So one of the things that we've been doing is we've been working um, with a local flint napper, Michael Peterson, and so he's been making um, some of the obsidian blades, um, which is actually on the poster for the event today. 
And so we are practicing with the flint napping aspect of it and then also the use of it as well to see how effective some of these weapons are. And then I have a graduate student, Laura Lynn, <laughs> who's sitting right here and trying to hide from us. Um, so what she's doing for her master thesis is she's actually making replicas of Aztec weaponry, um, which are pretty similar to what we also see in the Maya world. So she's experimenting with different kinds of woods, um, also flint napping to make the obsidian blades. And so what's the name of the? And so what we have, it's a particular weapon that it's really effective. If you, um, if you go to the Spike channel, they actually have a really cool video um, that shows just how effective this particular weapon is. Because it would have had obsidian blades all along the edges, um, which is very effective when it comes to hand-to-hand -hand kind of combat. Um, the Spike channel um, people did a research, and one of the things that they did with a ballistics dummy, a horse, um, and they, the reason they picked a horse is because there's a historical account about how in ancient times you could have decapitated a horse with this kind of weapon. And so in their um, experimental work, they were able to see that you can actually almost decapitate um, almost all the way across um, a horse. But if we think about our bodies, well, this is a very effective weapon because obviously our, our neck is a lot narrower than... Um, than a horse, obviously. So it's a very effective <laughs> particular weapon, if you ask me. Um, the other thing that I did uh, for my dissertation is um, I wanted to do some sort of comprehensive database of all of the places, like most graduate students, I wanted to do it all. Um, and so I wanted to come up with a database and a typology of all of the fortifications in Central America. So that includes all of the places in Mexico, Guatemala, Belize. Um, so I got most of them, but not all of them. Um, this is one of the oldest sites in um, the Maya area. So it's the site of El Mirador, and it's a really big site that was occupied in the pre-classic. Um, it's one of the places that was excavated by Richard, Han Richard Hansen, um, and it changed the way we see the Maya world because all of the things that we thought happened in the early and the late classic actually happened centuries before that in the pre-classic. And then I was really pleased when I found that they also had a fortification in the pre-classic. Um, and that's what you're looking at. So this is a map of um, El Mirador. And one of the things you'll see is on the southern part, this particular section that's highlighted in green, it's a fortification that covers the southern part of it. If we move on to the eastern side, uh, there's a fortification wall. So it's a wall that, you know, it's pretty wide and it's actually pretty high up. On this particular side, this is a causeway. So it's a causeway connecting this to another group um, that's not in this particular side. But you could see that they actually built it um, to go across. Um, the particular causeway. So that's to minimize traffic going in and out of the site. Um, and there is actually a little ramp that people would have had to use to come up in this particular area. And then if you go to the north side, uh, that's actually where the wall is the highest. Um, and there's a really steep incline in the northern side and also on the western side. So they use the landscape, um, especially for um, defensive purposes, right? So in the places where it's really steep, uh, the wall um, also is pretty high up as well. Um, so that would have taken a lot of manpower, especially if you think about all of the stones that they would have had to remove from a quarry and then bring to the side and then, of course, stack them properly. 
Um, we think that some of these places were wide enough um, so that they could have a palisaded feature. So a palisaded feature would have been essentially an extension made out of wood for people to walk around and be able to throw projectiles at people a lot easier, or just to see if anybody else was coming into the area. Um, this is a site uh, from the early classics, so next um, time period over. So in the early classic, um, this is an aerial imagery of the site of Pekan, and Dr. David Webster is the individual that did his work, um, his dissertation work at Pekan. Um, so one of the things uh, that I find fascinating about this particular place is again, you know, thinking about the labor um, that would have took, especially to dig the size of this particular ditch. Now it's a ditch, and I'll show you why. So this particular section, um, these two images, um, this is an artistic reconstruction of the site. Like most sites, it has uh, pyramidal structures, um, a couple of um, sort of e-groups, and so, and then what I'm interested in this particular site is the ditch that goes all the way around. You'll notice that there's little areas that would have been used for entry points. So there are six of those. So there are six small um, entry points into the site uh, that have causeways. So they have a little road. Um, during the excavation, some of these causeways were actually destroyed. So it's possible that um, during, not during excavation, but in ancient times. So what probably happened is that the city was under attack and that they just destroyed um, some of the points that people could have used to get in and out of the site. Um, so it would have minimized um, how many would have gotten inside the area. So for um, David Webster excavated in a lot of these places, and what he was able to see is that all of the soil that they removed um, to create that particular ditch, they used it for the parapets in the back. And then they built um, also palisaded features on top of that. So it's a really impressive um, defensive feature. And the reason why I say it's a ditch and not a moat, um, it's because um, the excavations um, they were not able to find plaster. So for example, if they would have found the plaster um, at the bottom of the moat or the sides of the moat, um, that would have actually held the water in, kind of like the lining in a pool, right? If you don't have the lining in a pool, the water's just gonna go right through. Um, so that's one of the reasons why um, in early times this was mislabeled as a moat and then now we changed it to a ditch. This is one of my favorite places. Um, this is a site, uh, Punta de Chimino, and it's located in Guatemala. And it's part of what we know as the Petech Batun polity. So Petech Batun, um, so I mentioned Lady Six Sky um, early on. So her father is actually the individual um, who set up a lot of these particular polities in the area. So what we have in the Petech Batun is um, it begins sort of in the late classic, probably around 500, 600 AD, we have um, the beginnings of a lot of endemic warfare, right? So um, one of the rulers from Tikal moves into this particular area um, and essentially creates a lot of issues because he ends up taking over this particular region and then Lady Six Sky um, carries on her father's legacy. So we see a lot of warfare in this particular section and so when I started looking into it, um, I thought I would only find fortifications at the big places, right? Um, so that, I 
both erroneous because what we're finding in these particular areas in the Patek Batuan is that even the small villages have fortifications. So whatever was happening, it wasn't just affecting the elites, it was also affecting the commoners, the farmers, um, the people that were essentially feeding a lot of the individuals. So Punta de Chimino is located, is, is a peninsula, right? So what they did in ancient times, which is really ingenious, is that they actually dug out um, three moats, right? And so there's three moats. This one, you could actually um, pretty much drive a, a small boat um, through it. And so I'll show you a little bit of these particular measurements. And then, of course, uh, the soil testing indicates that all of this was actually used for farming purposes. So again, we see that a lot of their food and resources is being protected, right? Because in times of warfare, if there's a siege, you know, people want to make sure that they have enough food um, in that particular area. So, so we have measurements for all of the three modes, but I'm only going to provide you with the top one uh, because it's the one that is really extensive. So again, uh, Dr. Demaris is the one who directed um, a lot of the work in this particular region. So what we see is that you know, people could have come from the mainland and they would have probably have to check in here if they were going to walk across. Or if you had a canoe, you could canoe over here, and then there's a little dock over here uh, that people could have used um, to sort of um, dock their canoes and then move on forward. Um, there are other places, um, you know, it's a peninsula, but this is actually really steep, and so it's actually not um, very easy to climb in that particular section. So the length of the wall, so the moat itself, is actually 150 meters long, right? So the length of it is actually 140. And then the width across is 45 meters. So they, then that's all man-made. And then on top of that, they kept digging down. And so it was about nine meters um, deep um, in that. And then what they did is all of that soil and stones they used to actually construct the wall. So the wall itself is roughly about um, eight meters. So essentially, this is a pretty impressive uh, fortification that they used in this time. And then there's also a burial that was excavated right here. And so he was actually um, roughly about a 14-year-old male uh, that was deposited at the base of this particular structure, the, the fortification. So we think it was probably some sort of offering when uh, the structure itself was actually built. So when we think about defensive features, you know, we think about, well, why go to all that effort um, when people, maybe they could have moved somewhere else, or why do it in some of these particular regions? So of course, this, for this particular site, this is the primary line of defense, right? So we have a primary, a secondary, and a tertiary um, line of defense. So it also restricts access to a site, um, same as we saw with the other places, um, like El Mirador, um, also the site of Pecan, because there's only um, X amount of points where you could get in and out of the city. And then, of course, in some of the areas, especially here, we see that some of these places are sort of dotted across the landscape, kind of like in medieval times, where you see a lot of sort of these areas that have fortifications on the borders to protect those po uh, political borders. And as I mentioned earlier, we see that there's a series of fortified villages all across the landscape. And so again, we see them um, more prominent on the borders where it would have been another polity. Now, one thing to remember is that the Maya were never, ever unified under a single king. There was a series of different kingdoms um, in different areas um, that essentially controlled a particular region. And then, of course, sometimes those kingdoms, like Kalakmul and Tikal, uh, went, went on to uh, full-scale warfare. 
And then, of course, um, one of the reasons is uh, to absorb sort of that uh, main impact of um, attacking in the area. Hopefully, it would have also slowed down attackers that were coming into the area. Um, that's one of the things that we see uh, because this is one probably the only place in the Pitex platoon that actually survived the wars in the Terminal Classic. So out of all of the places that we see um, in this particular region, this was the one that was the most effective. And it's probably because of their location and the fact that they were cut off from the mainland. And then, of course, um, sometimes it's just keeping people within the walls, right? So it's all about controlling population and keeping them in, perhaps maybe psychological warfare or political propaganda. And some of what we're going to talk about today, I won't talk about this right now, but we'll talk about it a little bit later today, um, is forensic evidence of um, conflict. And so I'll discuss um, some of those particular um, indicators. So for example, in conflict, a lot of the times we see evidence of parry wounds, right? So for example, you know, you'd normally put your hand up, and then um, we see evidence of bones that have lacerations. Um, there's evidence from um, the king of Copan, actually, the first king of Copan, has a lot of blunt force trauma, and then he also has it right above the elbow as well. So we see it even on the elite individuals that would have partaken um, part in warfare. So we're going to talk about one of the sites that was occupied in the Terminal Classic. The Terminal Classic is a time period that was roughly from 800, 850 to roughly about 900 or 950 AD. What we see a lot during the Terminal Classic, and a lot of people use the collapse, sort of the Maya collapse. I'm not a fan of the term Maya collapse because it sort of indicates that everything stops. It doesn't. What we see is just evidence of recessions, right? So kind of like an economic recession. And so I'll explain that a little bit. We see overpopulation, right? So we end up seeing that some sites um, end up increasing um, tremendously in population. And then if people are moving into different areas and leaving their old cities, their old towns, those old towns don't get any new construction. So there's no new um, architectural big buildings being built. We also see a lack of those big stone monuments. Um, we don't see those being built that often as we had in previous time periods. And then, of course, warfare, which is why we're here. Um, so we see a big increase of warfare um, pretty much hitting all over um, the Maya lowlands in the Terminal Classic. Because of warfare, we see issues with trade. So a lot of these products that would have been coming into the area, such as obsidian, now we see that it's being traded in from a different region. So with obsidian, we can do XRF analysis. So it's really non-invasive. And I could actually put, a little, you know, put it under the microscope, and it will tell me exactly what, volcan vol what volcano is actually coming from. So we have that particular chemical analysis that gives us an idea of the trade routes and how they're changing. And then, of course, we see problems with epidemics, right? So there's a lot of conflict, lack of resources, too many people vying for these same resources. And then, of course, with more people all together, um, it's a lot easier to pass around viruses, kind of like here. 
<laughs> so I'm trying not to cough on people. Um, so what we see is epidemics. Um, so for example, we see in some areas, we see anemia, right? So anemia, it's an iron deficiency. And the way that it shows up on the forensic records is that the top of the skull starts to look a little spongy. And so we see evidence of that um, hitting all of the levels of the socioeconomic area. So we see it on the um, commoners, and then we also see it on the elites. So these lack of resources are essentially hitting everybody. One of the things that we also see in the Terminal Classic is um, issues with pregnancy. So one of the issues is that um, there's all of these different things going on. You know, people are cutting, cutting the forest too much. Um, it's impacting the animals, right? So the animals that would have survived on the forest are having an issue. Those uh, pathogens that usually target animals are now targeting people because the animals are not there anymore. And then women, because they're being affected by lack of resources, um, usually hits them a little bit harder. So what we see is sort of a decrease on um, successful pregnancies. So essentially what we see is women um, that are having a lot of health um, issues, and if the baby does actually make it, usually the mortality rate is within two years. And then, of course, all of the cutting of trees, as we have that same issue today, is impacting the soil, right? So that we see a lot of soil erosion, which, again, it's impacting the food resources. And then we also see these climatic changes, um, like El Nino, La Nina, um, that are impacting um, these particular areas. Where I work, um, the rain gets really bad, and some of these areas actually flood um, really fast, which will have an impact on the crops, and again, you know, people fighting over those particular resources. And if that's not enough, they ended up with droughts. Um, some of these droughts, they were impacting parts of Central America also for decades. So, um, and it's an area where there's a rainy season, but if there's a lot of droughts, um, it's not enough um, water for everybody. So we're going to talk about um, targeted violence towards the elites, right? Because when people are not happy with their government, right, they go especially straight after the people that they perceive to be in power. So the elite individuals were supposed to be in charge of um, rituals that were supposed to bring the rain, that were supposed to um, increase um, crop, especially on a, day, on a yearly basis. So some of the places that we talked about were in, by, that arrow is actually at, so Guatemala. The place that I'm going to talk about right now, it's Colja. So Colja, for centuries, because they're located um, essentially right on top of a chert resource, and it's the most beautiful chert I've ever seen in my life. Um, really high quality. Um, I mean, it's really nice and beautiful. And of course, they made lots of different tools. One of the tools that they're most famous for are the eccentrics. Um, some of these eccentrics are actually really small, so just barely an inch wide. And so you have to think about the level of skill to actually flint nap those pieces, especially for all of these uh, tiny little places that you would have had to pressure flake. So this place, again, for centuries, was responsible for um, manufacturing a lot of tools made out of chert. And then on the last decade or so, according to the record, we know that they were making a lot of weapons towards the end. So whatever was happening, um, they were actually making weaponry. So this is um, a site map of um, Kolha. 
So you'll see that there's big pyramidal structures. These two is actually a ball court, so there's a really nice ball court there. And ball court would have been used uh, to play the ball game um, in ancient times, which you play essentially um, with a rubber ball um, and on the hips, and you're not supposed to use um, your feet like soccer today. Uh, this is the biggest plaza, and then of course we have a smaller series of plazas um, also with pyramidal structures. So what we're gonna talk about, and by the way, um, up just essentially refers to an operation, so an excavation operation, and then 2011 and 2012 just refers to the numbers, so the sequence of um, excavations. So we're going to talk about 2011. Um, so we had um, Dr. Um, Hester was the director for this particular project in the 80s, and so he had a series of excavations. Some of them were just to find out the chronology and the occupation of the site. So a lot of us in archaeology, what we do is we excavate in plazas, right? So kind of like in the plaza here. So we would excavate down to get a little bit of chronology, right? Because streets are paved, um, methodology changes a little bit, materials change a little bit. So it's a quick and easy way to get chronology without doing too much invasive archaeology. So they ended up with a surprise. Um, and the surprise was in their excavations in front of that building, they came across a pit an ancient pit. So they came across a pit, not very big, only about 80 centimeters by about 110. When they kept excavating, um, they came across a deposit of 30 individuals. So there were 30 individuals um, that were um, deposited there. It was only the skull stuff. So where the rest of the body is, we have no idea. So what we're gonna talk about are those particular 30 individuals, and you'll notice that the ratio is pretty even, and we'll talk a little bit about what could have been the reason for that. So this is um, an image of the deposit, so the Koha skull pit. So again, you're looking at um, sort of the bird's eye view of 30 um, individuals. Now they're all deposited in layers, right? So what we have is that the younger individuals are deposited at the bottom, right? And then the next age bracket is on the middle with the older individuals on the top. So it's been hypothesized that perhaps this was a takeover. This might have been um, individuals taking out the entire um, lineage of that particular family that was in control of Koha. Now you have to think about in ancient times if the individuals that are younger are at the bottom, it could have been that um, they were essentially forced to watch their children being beheaded, um, and then eventually wait um, their turn um, for that. So you'll see in this particular image that we have some cranial beautification in some of these. And then of course, because of the nature of the deposit, some of the skulls um, were actually crushed. Um, so some of the skulls, especially at the bottom because they're younger, um, the, the preservation wasn't that great. So let's talk a little bit about what we have. Um, and she did her dissertation at this particular site. So what we see, um, just like what we have here, is that the skulls, um, when they were deposited again, so they were beheaded and then deposited into the pit, so the uh, bones would have still been articulated, right? And that's how we know that um, they would have been deposited immediately after beheading. Now I have an image, and so what you're looking at is uh, one of the vertebrae from back here. And so what we see is that this poor individual was beheaded, hit, but the cut didn't make it all the way across. So that's the arrow that you're looking at. And then you see the clean break. 
So essentially they used a stone axe to behead the individual. It was a failed attempt, it didn't go all the way across, and then they hit that person again the second time, and then that's where you see that particular clean break in there. Um, at Kolha, there's beautiful stone um, churd, um, beautiful axes, and so they actually found a couple of axes, and then they were gonna do um, residue analysis on the edge to try to figure out if maybe they could find um, human DNA or blood um, samples on the edges, um, but I don't know if they've actually finished that. So, cranial beautification, and I have a sample up here, and again, these are just, um, they're not real, it's just a cast. So cranial beautification would have been done um, for elite purposes, right? So it's a way in the ancient Maya world where we would have let they would have done this to mark that they were high-ranking status. This would have been done when the individual was young, right? So when the bones are actually still malleable enough to be shaped. And then this one has um, trepanation. Trepanation? Drilling the top of the head for headaches. So what we see is um, that eight individuals had cranial beautification. Some of these eight individuals um, had that forming in the back of the head. Um, some of them were, were children that were starting that particular process. So on the children, you could see it, but it's not quite as pronounced as the adults. And then again, um, one of the things that I wanted to show is another elite marker would have been the teeth. So the teeth, uh, what they would have done is that they would have filed um, the teeth uh, to a particular section, um, and then they would have used uh, precious stones. So they would have used um, jade or amber or whatever was actually available um, to use that. And again, this is for elite marking purposes. So just imagine in ancient times, um, we don't know what kind of anesthetics they had um, and, or what kind of tools. So we've talked about that. I have a lot of family that are dentists, and so that's one of the questions that I'm always asking. The best thing they could have used would have been diamond, like a diamond drill, but there's no diamonds in this part of the world. So we think maybe they used jade, uh, but I haven't had any volunteers to try to do this one. <laughs> Um, but we did, we did do it on this particular cast, and this is what we used um, to essentially um, teach students um, how it would have been done and how difficult it is. Um, we do find that um, the implement that they would have used, because they would have drilled a hole, right? And then they would have used something to adhere uh, the stone onto the tooth. And so one of the things that they used um, was actually something that they used for plaster. So what they also used for plastering the walls um, is the same chemical compound that would have used for those particular fillings and then also to adhere um, that as well. So just think about that hole and having a cold drink or a hot drink and then that going right through the nerves. Um, so the osteological remain and the analysis shows uh, that nine of the individuals had dental modifications. So again, this is all evidence that these people were of elite status. What we also see is uh, really bad um, dental health. Um, so we see that about seven individuals had quite a high number of cavities um, in their teeth. And then um, even a child that was still unweaned um, based on the osteological remains already had that particular issue. And the other thing is that children that were roughly from three to four years old also had quite a big problem. So again, this also gives us an indication of what people were eating, right? So just like us today, if we're consuming a lot of sugar or anything that's really bad, it's gonna impact um, the dental care as well. So we see that um, quite a lot. So, this is um, 
pretty much the majority of what we're going to talk about. So what we see is cut marks. So cut marks are present on 20 out of the 30 individual. Um, the other 10 samples um, were too crushed or too badly preserved to actually do analysis to see um, if, if there were any kind of cuts on there. But 20 of the individuals um, see um, there's evidence of marks on here. So what you see is essentially very similar to butchering practices, right? So it's essentially flaying away the skin and the tissue away uh, from the head of the individual, hopefully after they were decapitated. Um, and so we see markings here, and then of course marking in the back of, of the head, right? So back here, our muscles actually have to be really strong, right? Because you know our head needs to be really well supported, so these muscles have to be um, really well supported. And that's one of the reasons why you see more cut marks in that back of the area, right? So essentially to remove um, that particular tissue. Now you'll notice that the cut marks are very linear, right? So they're very sort of precise. Because one of the questions was, well, how do we know this wasn't animals, right? Maybe carnivores um, chewing away at the bones. And so that's what they did. They put all of these um, cranial remains under a microscope to really study the pattern and the marks. And so one of the things that came across, A, wasn't animals, it was actually people. Uh, because those were done with a stone tool. And then the other thing is that they're sort of very precise, very methodical almost. And that's one of the things that we can see from there. So they've removed all of the tissue um, also around um, the eyes, right? So around the orbital area, we see a lot of cut marks in there to remove um, you know, the eyes. And then one of the other things we see is that they also removed the tongue, right? So they ended up getting rid of that. Other things that we see, again, that gives us an indication of diet and what was happening that was impacting everybody, because again, these individuals were all elite, um, they had evidence of um, hypoplasia. So those are essentially little lines that um, people would have on their teeth. And so that's indicative of um, a stress that they had when they were children. So lack of food, lack of proper food, and so you could probably go around here and see if you have any um, of these particular lines. And so the more lines that you have, then it's indicative of a series of different episodes um, of lack of proper diet when they were children. So we see evidence of um, four individuals that had that on their teeth, you know, on top of the cavities and all the other dental issues they had. Um, and then we see the other lines on the bones. On the bones, they're called Harris lines, and so they essentially look the same, that they would have had it um, when they were children, and then they, they don't actually go away. So to recap, <laughs> So to recap, what we see is um, a violent episode, right? Because decapitating 30 individuals is not an act of peace, right? That's an act of warfare, <laughs> a pretty impressive psychological warfare, um, especially if you think about the other individuals, the rest of whoever was occupying the site, they would have had to stand there and watch the lineage essentially get wiped out, um, even down to the children, which again, it's more of a traumatic event um, to do that. And again, you know, the individuals were decapitated, skin removed, all organic tissue removed, and then stacked by age groups on this particular pit. If that's not enough, they set the pit on fire. If that's not enough, they also um, destroyed the building behind it. So this particular building, uh, they destroyed part of it. So that building actually collapsed on top of that pit. 
which was good for the archaeologists because it actually encased that particular deposit. And so that's what they ended up excavating, the remains of that collapsed building. Uh, the burning of um, that particular building and the pit uh, was also, in a, you know, in a roundabout way, um, good for archaeology because we were able to get radiocarbon dating and get a calibrated date um, for this particular deposit. So it dates to roughly about 750 or so AD, which times with the Terminal Classic as well. And then there's more. <laughs> so the poor people of Kolha, um, you know, they had this particular really sad episode up here. And then um, the excavators, again, in the 1980s, came down to this particular area to get a little bit more chronology, um, you know, comparative analysis. Um, and then, of course, they ended up hitting yet another deposit. Um, so sometimes when buildings are terminated, um, because a building is seen as being alive, so a building is alive, same thing with ceramic vessels. Um, when a building is going to be abandoned, a lot of the times the Maya would have also um, released the spirit of that particular building by destroying it or by having some sort of termination ritual activity, uh, which is what we think is happening here. So there's hundreds of vessels that were broken. So what they would have done is grabbed a lot of these vessels, broken them around um, areas of interest. So for example, the axis of a building, the, the staircase that would have led up, um, they would have smashed pieces of ceramics. Um, here we also see obsidian um, that was also left on the surface as offerings. Um, we see obsidian that's also um, green obsidian. So green obsidian is very, um, it's, it's more um, sought after. Um, it's seen as having a little bit of higher um, value in Central America. And it's really beautiful. And then they also had um, greenstone artifacts. So jadeite um, that was actually deposited in there. So once the excavators went below that layer, they found 25 individuals. So again, we see, and then this is on top of the other 30 individuals from the other uh, part of the site. So when they found these 25 individuals, um, they had to essentially, again, do very meticulous excavation because anytime you deal with forensic um, remains, everything has to be really measured, excavated really carefully so um, you figure out which um, remains go with which ones. So again, we see very similar um, very similar cut marks to what we saw with the other deposit. So we see individuals that, again, were um, essentially flayed, um, organic tissue um, of the eyes, and then the tongue also removed. Um, but the cut marks do seem a little bit different. Um, they're not quite as precise as the other ones. So what we can see by comparing um, the cut marks is that there's more than one individual um, essentially doing um, the processing uh, of these remains. One of the other things that we see is um, on the humerus bones. Does anybody know where the humerus bones are? Ah, there are my archaeology students behind them back there. <laughs> so what we see is um, that there's cut marks, again. And so they're very linearly um, cut marks that are placed. And again, archaeologists did the same thing. They put the bones under a microscope to figure out, again, you know, if it's carnivores or um, stone tools. And again, it's stone tools um, that were used um, to essentially cut systematically. And so what we see, again, very similar to butchering practices, right? Removing sort of the extremities and then removing the skin away um, of that. 
Now, I should mention that sometimes this is done uh, for burial practices. So we don't know if it's part of burial, but given that the other deposit was warfare-related and they date to the same time period, uh, we could hypothesize that it's part of the same um, traumatic political event. So one of the things that we see is, obviously, with the 30 decapitated individuals and then the 25 individuals uh, that were also deposited at a different spot, only about 100 meters away, um, it's a very strong um, political statement um, that was done at the site, right? And so we see that as being a sort of a very powerful thing um, to do. But it's not the only place where there was targeted um, violence towards the elite. We see it at Altar de Sacrificios. We see it at Yakshuna. At Yakshuna, they actually dismantled um, part of a council building, desecrated um, burials um, that were of previous individuals. And so we see um, evidence of that um, targeting people. And again, um, we think that this is probably um, individuals that were not happy with our government and sort of essentially going after people that they felt um, had actually failed them. So what we see at, at Kolha is after these episodes, uh, the site is actually abandoned. And so it's one of the best areas to occupy because of the church, right? So the church is a great resource because it would have essentially enabled them to have a great economic um, way to trade and interact with other groups. So the people that um, were left after this episode, um, they were not feeling very safe there, so they end, up, they end up abandoning the area. So they'd leave. Where they go, we have no idea. Um, it would be really great to try to do some sort of migration um, isotopic analysis so we can see where people are moving. And this is really similar to what we see today in the Middle East, right? So we see people leaving areas, migrating to lots of different places, ending up in um, different parts of the world just because of all the conflict that's going on. So that's sort of what we see in this particular part of the world. So the site ends up being abandoned roughly for 50 to 100 years. And ironically, it ends up getting um, occupied by a different group. So another different group that migrates into the area. And we know it's a different group because they come with their own ceramics that are completely different than what we see in the previous um, years. And then the other reason is the architecture. They build smaller um, structures uh, that are more common in a different part um, of the region. And then, it's, uh, and then we have occupation for a little bit in the post-classic, and then unfortunately some of the sites end up being abandoned. Um, in Belize, um, there's a site called Lamanai um, that ends up being occupied all the way um, until um, colonial um, contact, and even afterwards. And then um, this particular slide, um, so a lot of my students are actually um, military vets, and so I became really curious talking to them about um, their impact in, you know, that they've had um, serving and then coming back. And so I started researching, and I've been finding a couple of murals and um, iconographic evidence that shows in ancient times that soldiers are coming back from their warfare episodes. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that some of them um, clearly showed that um, there's amputation, so probably from conflict, just like we have our soldiers today that are coming back um, with a lot of injuries. So this is one of the um, next phases of uh, the research that I really want to look into, because we definitely want to figure out, well, how were soldiers treated in ancient times if they came back and they were no longer um, as mobile as they used to be? So that's part of what we're going to do next. So does anybody have any questions, comments? 
on the dental problems with the elite people. Sometimes the elite get all of the treats, and the <laughs> commoners might have had better teeth. There is research um, that was done um, to see what people from different social strata were eating, and what we see is not really a lack of of different food. Essentially, the majority of them were eating maize. What we do see um, differences in dietary between elite and commoners is the quantity of protein. So the elites were getting a higher quantity of protein than the commoners. Commoners were getting um, majority carbs. Hi. So to piggyback on the last question, Mm -hmm. how do you see warfare affecting the majority of the Maya, the commoner, especially those that are further away from the ceremonial centers? So it depends. Um, in some areas, it wasn't really impacting the commoners as much because it was more targeted in big places. Um, and, but in other areas, like they're not really attacking each other. They're going after the food resources, which are the commoners, the farmers, the people that are fishing. And so that's where we see it, where it sort of escalates. For whatever reason, it's escalating in some areas more than others. And so we definitely see that there's more um, resources allocated to actually fortifying smaller villages, which we don't see that in earlier time periods. Was there any way to tell, like, I don't know if you actually looked for it or not, if the flaying of the skin was done before or after the decapitation? Um, Yes. Um, Dr. Massey looked into that particular question, and she was able to figure out that it was done afterwards. When we went and visited there a few years ago, I was really, really taken by the the immense quantity of rock that they moved around. Yeah. And what drove that, and what did they feed them all? There's a lot of calories there. Um, I'm really interested in volumetric analysis. Um, So I'm really interested in, for example, the quantity of materials that they would have had to get from a quarry to then get it to where they needed to get it. You could actually look at um, sourcing to try to figure out, well, where is the particular stone coming from? Is it coming from that particular quarry or a different area? So the Maya didn't actually have any animals that they could have used for carrying um, stone pieces. So the majority of them actually had, and we did this in um, my dissertation project in the Yucatan, and all of the archaeologists miserably failed um, because we were trying to figure out how much stone we could actually carry. And so essentially, they would have had um, a piece of cordage, so rope essentially, that they would have tied here and then essentially tied all around the stone um, to essentially um, hoist it here and then walk sort of this way with it. Um, Osteologically, that actually leaves an imprint here. Um, So there are remains um, that have that indentation here from just constant labor of carrying that. Um, So we see that people were doing it. Um, There's been people that do uh, research sort of on the mathematics behind it, like how many stones can you move on a daily basis, how many laborers would you need. Um, And of course, a lot of it is theoretical, and some of us have tried to do it, as I mentioned, and we were not very good at it. Um, But now that I CrossFit, maybe I can get better. (laughs) So we previously talked about the ruling class and the commoners. Who would have made up the warrior class, and how would their economic status differ from the other two groups? That's a great question. Unfortunately, because there's 
it, that the Maya um, had codices uh, that were made out of bark um, or animal skin where they had a lot of this information. A lot of these were actually burned. But for the Aztecs, we do have a bit more information. So for the Aztecs, we know that there were different social classes and even schools. Um, so kind of similar to what we have today you know, with West Point. Uh, but for the Maya, unfortunately, we don't have that information. Um, so we hypothesize that they probably had something similar just based on the level of skill we think that probably some of the members of um, elite class were probably the ones that were maybe um, in charge of smaller groups, like smaller battalions. Uh, but probably um, the individuals, like the commoners, were probably being drafted when it wasn't um, the farming season. That's one of the things that's been hypothesized. Uh, was there evidence of uh, slavery there? Yes, that was one of the other reasons for warfare also, um, capturing of labor. There's evidence of slaves being captured and brought back to the site, um, sometimes for sacrificial purposes, other times to be used as um, laborers too. So we see quite a bit of evidence of that, um, you know, going pretty far back. Well, that is all the time that we've got. One last time, please give it up for Marisol Cortez Rincon. <laughs> And that is our show. If you want to follow up or look at things, we've got links and pictures posted in the show notes at khsu.org. My favorite lecture is a collaboration between Humboldt State University, KHSU, and Arcata Main Street. It's produced by Frank Whitlatch, Nancy Stevenson, and myself. Our live sound engineer is Chris Pereira, and our recording engineer is Mark Jeffers. Thanks to the Plaza Grill, Katie Whiteside, Lost Coast Light and Sound, and special thanks to our outgoing producer, Nancy Stevenson, Ben Marshke and Michael Goodman, who were involved with putting on the campus series that inspired the off-campus effort. And finally, special thanks to our lecturer, Marisol Cortez Rincon. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast at iTunes. Just search for My Favorite Lecture. Leave us a review if you like what you hear. This is Mike Dronkers, and we will see you next time for more remarkable talks from HSU educators on My Favorite Lecture. Mm-hmm.